And in this corner, the Renector. In this episode, we're going to talk about the future of events and the hobby. Also, welcome to Funke and Lars Petter as patrons. We are, of course, forever grateful for your support. Hey everybody, this is Chris here once again with Lassa for yet another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. How are you doing today, Lassa? I am doing fine, actually. The sun is shining and life's good, I suppose. Uh, how are you? I'm doing good. Glad to be chatting with you again. I'm excited about the podcast today. Uh, I think we have a, an interesting uh, topic that I've kind of wanted to get into with you, which is um, kind of the, the idea about improving the World War II reenactment hobby. This is something that gets brought up a lot on social media. People talk about the direction the hobby is going in, you know, is a new event or a new trend in reenacting going to take things to the next level? And uh, I think it's a great thing to discuss because there's a lot of different angles to look at this from. Yeah, certainly, especially with the difference between um, Europe and USA, I suppose, too. That has something to to say, too. Well, yeah, I mean, we should probably just say right at the outset that, you know, the reenacting, in my opinion, right, I think reenacting is a pretty fundamentally like regional hobby. So, you know, I'm coming at this from a perspective of a person who does reenactment events in the northeastern part of the United States. And you obviously do, do you've done a reenactment in the U.S., but you mostly reenact in Europe. And those are very different places with different kind of reenactment cultures, I think. So what might be a truth for me, it might be very different for you. Yeah, and I that's what makes this um, interesting. Sure. And, you know, I will say, the only thing I know about reenactment events that take place in other parts of the United States, right, like in the South or the West Coast, the only stuff I know about those events is stuff that I've learned from looking at it on the Internet. And if there's one thing that I've learned over the last 20 years of doing this, it's that the reality of what events actually are when you are at them is often different from how they are portrayed on the internet. You know, so the reality is I don't actually know what those events are like. You know, I don't know if those events have improved. You know, so I make I might make some statements here that are just wrong or or that just aren't applicable to to certain areas, right? I mean, uh, events will always be different online than in real life. You know, you really can't judge like a reenactment, how realistic it was or wasn't from looking at pictures online. People who enjoy an event have an interest in making it look like it was like super realistic, right? It Um, reminds me of the photo you posted from uh, the last Stalingrad event where you took a really zony photo, but then you have like a behind the scenes photo with an excavator right next to it. Yeah, we took a photo that was, uh, I think, probably is going to be the reenactment picture of the year for me. It's our little group wearing our, you know, correct Stalingrad impressions. Everybody looks great. Everybody looks real. And we're standing in front of this really atmospheric rubble. You know, there's a broken down wall. There's 
there's bricks and debris all over the place and it looks like a picture out of World War II, but a digital camera photo taken uh, from a slightly different angle of exactly the same scene shows that we're standing <laughs> next to, you know, a, a huge modern vehicle and a bunch of modern stuff. You know, and th these are two uh, photographs of the same exact moment that show very, very different realities. And that's, for me, that's what makes uh, reenactment uh, so interesting too. How different events are, uh, how you perceive them during the event and how you perceive them after the event and also how they're perceived online. It's, uh, they're big differences. Yeah, that's really fascinating, I think, to, to think about. I mean, I've had, I've literally had people tell me that, you know, well, I, I take a dim view of this one event and I prefer events like this other event and then come to find out they've never attended either of the events, you know, and they just know about the events from their reputation, from uh, stuff that they read online or maybe from what they heard from other people who went. But, you know, look, I've, I've done events where, um, I had an unbelievably realistic time, you know, and I, I walked away feeling like I had been back in time for, for three days or whatever. But other people, someone else in a different role at the same event, might have been plagued with all kinds of modern headaches the entire time and had an absolutely terrible event, you know, with, with no realism at all. And it's the same event. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big difference just person to person. Part of that is that events are what you make of them, you know, like if you set yourself up to have a situation where you have a lot of control over what's around you, then you can um, you can basically create the environment around you and make it realistic. On the other hand, if you don't have that opportunity, um, you know, or if you you chose something that wasn't going to be as realistic, you know, not necessarily saying it's your fault, like a new recruit at an event is going to be doing pretty much what the unit dictates you know and whether that's realistic or not that might fall to to the unit commander or it just might be a, a facet of the event you know it might just be how the event is um, yeah but once you've done an event a few times usually you can find ways to mitigate the parts of it that you don't like and enhance the parts that you do like yeah if it's a uh, if it's a recurring event you can do that yeah so, uh, to talk about like the improvement concept, right? Um, I guess the big question is: Has World War II reenactment improved worldwide over the last twenty years? And I say twenty years because um, a lot changed in reenactment about twenty years ago. You had a lot of the vendors that we use were kind of just just coming online or just coming into their own at that time. You had um, kind of an explosion of World War II reenacting that was partially due to the internet becoming prominent around 20 years ago. You know, people were f finding access to reenactment information. They were finding out about reenactment. So uh, I didn't reenact. I started reenacting in 2000. Um, what reenactment was like before that, I only know about from some pictures and, you know, talking to the people who uh, were like my unit leaders when I got started in reenacting. But so I can't really speak on that from experience, but I think that it it definitely changed a lot about 20 years ago. So has it changed? Uh, has it changed in the last 20 years? Of course it has. Has it changed for the better? You know, personally, I'm not sure that it has. I look back on the reenactment group that I was in 20 years ago. We had 
a lot of people. We had very high uniform uh, standards, authenticity standards. Um, we had access to World War II veterans who gave us some of the information that we used to inform our portrayals. Um, a lot of people had family connections to World War II. They had grown up um, hearing stories about it, and maybe that informed their impressions some. And look, there were no, like, there were no cheap reproductions 20 years ago. All the reproductions were made in the U.S. or in Europe, and uh, they were, they, you know, by today's standards, almost all of this stuff is what you would call a high-end reproduction. Um, you know, fast forward to now, I feel like there's less people in reenacting. There is a lot of inferior quality reproduction stuff that has been made in the last 20 years that's still floating around. There's still suppliers who are making stuff that I don't think is very good. Um... You know, so that's so that's my take. You know, as far as like events go, I look back to the private tactical events that I was doing twenty years ago, or even like fifteen years ago, ten years ago, and just there were event-specific standards. Everybody portraying the same unit. Um, the standards for that unit were based on actual research into that historical place and time for that specific group. We had uh, frontline areas and rear areas working together, you know, people bringing up food, people laying uh, field phone wires, using switchboards so that you could communicate from one sector to another, people delivering Feldpost letters, you know, all of this stuff that adds so much to realism. This is all stuff that we were doing years and years ago. So in, in, in the Northeastern part of the United States, I don't think that events now are like noticeably really in any way better than what they were 20 years ago and like i say in some ways i think they're they're actually worse they're certainly smaller um now i know last you're gonna have like a very different idea about it <laughs> very different because 20 years ago there were no reenactment in norway yeah so 10 years ago there were no reenactment in norway reenactment in norway started like seven years ago six seven years ago and i mean obviously what we have now is way better than what was sure. um, regardless of how you look at it because something is better than nothing and I think it has improved a lot over the well since the start basically but then again it it, it will often improve uh, when you start stuff but uh, as you say for things that have been existing for probably 40-50 years I can see how the change um, uh, is noticeable uh, over the past 20 years. And I find it interesting you say that it is uh, getting worse. Because I feel I... the there's more stuff available, both in uh, research and kit and all of that. Uh, more niche products have been uh, started to be reproduced, so you can have a bigger span of impressions, etc., well, that's kind of a double-edged sword, you know, with the increased amount of stuff being available. I, I'll say when there was very limited options for reproduction stuff by today's standards, and when the stuff was very expensive compared to what it costs today, um, people kind of had to choose an impression and sort of stick with it because to build another impression was going to be so expensive. You know, when your tunic cost 
$350 and your pants cost $300. I mean, to get to get another model of tunic just to have an option of wearing a different jacket for specific events was like, it was kind of cost prohibitive. And so that had that had a few different effects on reenactment. Number one, it cut down on a lot of like the snowflake stuff and people were like really invested in working on their like unit impression together with the other guys in their unit because this was all the stuff that you had and it was hard to get that stuff and nobody wanted to try to put together some other, uh, you know, impression. The, the, the number of people doing multiple impressions was was lower so that people were more focused on their impression in their unit. And then the other thing is, I just like cut down on the amount of snowflake stuff. You know, there was less, if you wanted to uh, have something unique and, you know, something that's not the norm and something that's different, I mean, you were going to have to like pay for that or you were going to have to find some original thing. And so most people presented pretty standard impressions. And that that's like an aspect of visual realism that I that I personally think is cool. I can't see how that works out, but wouldn't you say that now that reenactment stuff is cheaper, it is a good thing that more people can um, uh, get their feet wet in the hobby? Well, that's that's kind of the weird thing about this, because when, when reenactment gear suddenly started to be made in China and became very cheap, there were a lot of people saying, this is awesome, it, World War II reenactment is going to uh, skyrocket in numbers. You know, we're going to have so many more people doing this, but at least in the United States and in, in the northeastern part of the United States... Numbers at reenactments now are like 10 or 20 percent of what they were 20 years ago when everything was more expensive, you know. So, you know, and there are look, there are a lot of reasons for that. And the cost of reenactment gear is just one variable that affects people's desire or interest or willingness to participate in this hobby, you know. So not to um, digress, but do you think the uh, lack of. Uh, events may come from that there are more or should I say less event organizers and just more reenactors in general? I think back to like my, my reenactment group, my former reenactment group at that time hosted an event and we hosted an event in western Massachusetts and we got hundreds and hundreds of people at that event. Um, I don't know, I think the highest number was around 800 people or something like that. This was at an event in western Massachusetts and Maybe it wasn't 800. Maybe it was, let's say, maybe it was 500, right? It was, it was hundreds. I mean, we had, I remember there was a, an, a, an airborne, a GI airborne unit. They would come with 100 guys, just that one unit. And um, we used to have to pay a per-person fee to the landowner um, that was pretty steep. There were other costs associated with the event, obviously. Um, you know, we, we supplied people with food, and we still wound up making like I don't know more than a thousand dollars. We made more than a thousand dollars off that event every year. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but it was a significant amount of money that we made, and that money formed like the majority of our operating budget for our reenactment group each year. So we would use that money to tow our trucks to big tactical events. Um, that were, you know, we, we had to hire like a car carrier uh, to take our vehicles to these events. And it was expe very expensive each time. But we were able to do that because we had these reenactments um, where we made, you know, what, if we made $2 off of every uh, $25 registration fee, right? It added up. 
And so the incentive to host events was clear. I mean, it's fun, and also you can get some money that allows your event, your unit to do other things. You know, fast forward to today, the largest event, the largest annual event in Massachusetts, it draws like maybe 40 people, maybe 50 people, right? Let's say it draws 50 people. I mean, you know, if you you make $2 off of every registration fee for the hosting unit, is that you're getting $100? You know, is it worth $100 to figure out the insurance, to, you know, set set it up with the landowner, to promote the event, to do all of the things that it requires to to host an event and have it be successful? It's something I've been talking about a little bit lately where it takes, reenactment has to have a certain scale to make certain things possible. You know, if you're going to have 500 people at an event, it allows you possibilities to do things that you can't do with a 50 person event. I think if there was more, if there were more reenactors, there would be more events. There would be more event organizers. There's a lot of people who are, I think right now, kind of content to just do like little five, 10 person events where it's kind of like a photo shoot and you're gonna post that on Instagram and get lots of likes and stuff. And I don't necessarily blame those people for doing that. I don't know if it would really be possible to have a, to start a big event in in 2020. You know, most of the large World War II reenactment events, most of them are events that have been um, going on for for a long time. And like an event like uh, the Stalingrad event at the factory site in Ohio, that's been going on for three years now or something like that. And uh, I think they had like 200 people or something at the at the last one. And now that's that's great for them. 200 people is a lot of people to be attending in a to be attending a reenactment in 2020, a World War II private tactical type event. You know, in 20, 20 years ago we had 1000 people at events like that. And that 200 people at Stalingrad, that's with people coming from like all over the world to do that event. Yeah, but I mean, the numbers uh probably started dwindling sometime. Do you, can you point at like any specific time when the numbers started dwindling yeah i mean i think the real start of it was actually in uh, 2001 when september 11th happened and a tremendous amount of people joined the real military in the united states the military ramped up and started to uh, do these deployments to the middle east for a lot of people who were young people who were like interested in military and combat and war and the types of things that people who are interested in World War II reenacting get involved with. I think it was probably more appealing to them to just join the real military and go fight their own war. And then you also have the fact that Airsoft became a hobby in the intervening years. And a significant number of people who might have gotten involved in historical reenactment for the like shooting and combat aspect instead decided to get involved with airsoft because maybe the the fake combat in airsoft is more realistic because you're actually shooting things at people um also you've got this very uh you got kind of this explosion in like social media and people being able to do all kinds of different impressions and people are doing you know more modern impressions they're doing you know, Vietnam and, and later stuff even, right? They're do, imp, imp, doing stuff from the 90s. And the, there are some events for that type of reenacting, but I think a lot of people just do it and just kind of like do it as photo shoots and stuff. Um, but look, all of that stuff detracts from like World War II reenacting. People have more options now. 
and uh, and also there was the economic collapse here in the United States in 2008 or the I don't know the recession right and since 2008 like our society has changed quite a bit a lot of people are working weekends now a lot of people are working two part-time jobs and people don't have I don't know a lot of people that I talk to don't have as much disposable income now for fun stuff as people did before 2008 so um, you know, people seem to have less time, people seem to have less money, and all of those things have affected it. There's a lot of reasons why. And then, you know, I'll throw out there lastly is like, uh, in, our, in the current political climate since 2017, especially, it's not really seen as very appealing to a lot of people to be appearing in public wearing a Nazi uniform with a swastika on it. You know, that's just a reality that we can't deny. But I know things are very different for you, where you live. I mean, you, do you think, what's the interest level in World War II over there? Is it is it increasing or staying the same? I uh, I think it's staying the same. Uh, there's a uh, influx of World War II movies uh, to be released in the next uh, couple of years. So, I mean, um, World War II movies always gives a good, um, it boosts the interest of the war. And therefore also brings in uh, new uh, reenactors. So I think we will probably see a, a member or, or at least a member or two from uh, who kind of got into the war through movies. That's awesome. Yeah, pub popular culture stuff like that is such a driving force. Um, I think it was part of the reason why World War II reenacting kind of exploded the way it did, like... In the late 90s, you had Saving Private Ryan and the Band of Brothers miniseries on HBO. And these things were seen by millions of people and uh, definitely sparked uh, a lot of desire to learn more, a lot of interest for a lot of people. Yeah, and I also feel the um, 2014 Fury also uh, did that, of course, to a lesser degree, but to some degree. Sure, and I know video games, too, have been like super influential in getting getting people involved and that's fine you know i'm not um, and i think that's great anything that gets people sparks an interest in history for people makes people want to learn more to go a little bit deeper with historic knowledge i think it's great i noticed myself i started looking at reenactment online when i was i mean back in 2005 or something and there were this huge event over in the states that uh, i kept looking at um with as you say, thousands or a thousand participants, but they don't really exist anymore. And I'm more curious to know if that's due to the lack of reenactors or just the lack of proper events. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Are there less reenactors because there are less events or are there less events because there are fewer reenactors? Yeah, exactly. And as you said, you, you hosted an event that brought people and you use that money for the uh, transport of vehicles and stuff. But you probably stopped doing that at some point, and that's one less event. And I know reenactors who do reenactment to participate at certain events, and when those events are don't exist anymore, they will just leave the hobby. Well, it gets... Uh, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we did stop hosting that event, and the reason why we stopped hosting it was because of issues with the property. The landowner began to use the property for other things, began to have uh, larger other types of events there, and the town got involved and started to create new guidelines for him where he was, for example, he was going to have to pay, uh, I don't know, like 
hundreds or thousands of dollars per weekend to have a firefighter with like a like a fire team with a fire truck there all weekend in case a fire started you know and that was because uh the town didn't like the events that he was having so they created these obstacles and it became impossible for him to host these kind of events anymore um you know that that kind of is like well you know why why don't we have more events i mean for one thing I, I'm going to do a bunch of events this year. I missed out on some events because of the coronavirus lockdowns, but I'll be going back to doing uh, monthly events at least through October and probably through the end of the year, unless we get locked down again, right? Um, so it's, I do have events to go to, but the events that I go to are very small. And the thing is, is that there's a bunch of sites where I do events that just couldn't, I couldn't have a big event there. You know, like uh, we're doing an event in September at a, a private property place in Vermont that I've talked about before. You can only park like 20 cars there. There's, you know, I, I, there's logistical aspects of it. The, the, the property is not very big. There's, like I say, there's not a lot of parking. And trying to find a site where you could host an event that could have hundreds of people at it, it's really, really hard, you know, and like that, like that, uh, that site in Ohio where they do the Stalingrad event, you know, I, I have to uh, kind of tip my hat to them because I, I know every reenactor has driven by and a falling down, crumbling, abandoned industrial building or factory, right? And thought, geez, it would be really cool to have a reenactment there. But there's a lot of reasons why it would be hard to do that, but they have found a way to do it. You know, they actually made it work. But these sites are rare. They're hard to find. Believe me, I would love to be able to host a larger event but i don't have any venue for it when these large venues go away it's really hard to find something to replace them i think a lot of people just think okay well reenactors are going to go to events right like there's this uh local event it's kind of lousy i don't really like it if only this event would go away so that their people's energy would be like transitioned over into doing the types of events that i do like but the reality is, is that when those events go away, the people who love doing those events just quit the hobby, you know, or a significant percentage of them do. And there, and nothing does come up to replace it. It's like, uh, you know, the event that you and I did together uh, in Pennsylvania, the 48 Town Gap event, Lasso, like, that's been gone now for two or three years, and there's been nothing to replace that. No one's been able to come up with anything close to that, so it just remains a big void in the schedule. There's nothing going on that month. There's no event to do, you know, and a lot of the people who love that event and whose reenactment year centered around that event, those people probably have uh, have begun to just fade away. So I suppose as a conclusion, kind of, maybe there are less reenactors because there are less uh, events, uh, less less local events, and be it due to political issues or the landlord being a bitch or you can't find any land to host the event on, then it just... Maybe maybe there's less reenactors because reenactors have nowhere to gather in their local community. The counterpart to that, though, can be like, for example, here in Massachusetts, there are some uh, like camps that cater to people who do live-action role-play. And it would be possible to rent these private properties that have cabins and stuff and do um, World War II reenactments there. But the rental cost for a weekend is extremely high. And so if you had 500 people sharing that cost, the cost per person would be low. But if it's 50 or 100 people sharing that cost, 
you know, the cost per person is, is extremely high and it becomes impossible. You know, so if if there were more reenactors, there could be more events. If there were more events, there would be more reenactors, I think. It's an evil circle. It's it's a snake eating its own tail. Do you think that World War II reenacting is improving now? You know, clearly everything is changing all the time. Is World War II reenacting improving or staying the same or getting worse? As said, for my point, it is improving, but... And I also think it is improving, at least in the uh, general European aspect, too, because I don't think the there's less events, to be honest. You know, I just feel like it's improving. Maybe it's because I have my eyes more open for stuff that is improving. If uh, World War II reenacting in continental Europe has more events than it did, has more people than it did, right? If, if World War II reenacting in Norway is bigger than it ever was, I mean, and continues to grow, those things are great. Those things are definitely an improvement. I remember in the past, you know, not to dwell too much on the, like my own memories, right? But um, I used to be totally impressed by these huge groups from the UK. And I know at least some of those groups that I kind of took inspiration from are now just like a shadow of what they were and the newer most of the newer groups that i see in the uk are like smaller by comparison you know all units will eventually fall but don't say that lasa <laughs> <laughs> no i mean when you have a group of people who um who do something if they don't keep on changing, they will eventually fall. And I think that's what happened to many of the big units in the UK. They maintained a status quo when people got tired and left. I agree that um, units have to be changing all the time. You know, reenactment is always changing and you've got to change too. And if you don't, the times pass you by and you become uh, obsolete and irrelevant and that's it. Exactly. And then new units will pop up. And if that that is... Uh, small units. I'm not sure if that is necessarily a bad thing. It may, in many cases, be an improvement too, but uh, it's difficult to say. It's uh, it can be hard to know, you know, what's going to change, how things are going to change, what's going to be around the corner, right? No one can really predict the future. Some things for me that would uh, that would improve the hobby would be. Um, I think of some examples. I mean, obviously, we've talked about this endlessly, but like more events, more reenactors, that would be a big improvement. Um, if World War II vehicles and World War II, like fully automatic weapons, squad level weapons, like, you know, machine guns that squads would have, if those things were somehow more available or like a. Like if, if blank firing versions or something were made um, so that more units could have like more correct armament for their groups. Also, I don't know, just one thing like that's kind of a pet peeve for me. I just see a lot of endless like wrong unit designation, wrong unit identification going on in this hobby where people are saying what unit they're in and it's not correct. It's not the way it's supposed to be expressed. And to me, that kind of speaks to like a lack of understanding of how these units really were organized, which I think is important information for a reenactor to have, right? So if there was some way for reenactors to be able to express these unit designations correctly and have a better grasp of the organization of the and unit structure, I think that would be an improvement. Um, you know, those are some things that that kind of jump out to me where if we could leave some of this stuff in the past that would you know that would be great 
Well, I mean, unit designation is kind of like a um, small thing to care about. <laughs> well, it's just like when I look, you know, when I look at like lists of reenactment group names, right? And they're just, uh, you know, it's like just stuff that's expressed totally incorrectly. I don't know. It doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in the uh, historical expertise of the people who were either compiling these lists or, or naming these groups. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, there's a reason we uh, changed from having a real military designation to just calling our unit the, the division. I, I mentioned it before, but it's for flexibility, first and foremost, but also not to have like a very advanced name. Like calling your unit for 2 slash 4 point KP, it's, it just it doesn't really roll off the tongue that easy, does it? You know, it's just easier to say, you know, we portray 11th Company Gross Deutschland rather than saying uh, 11th Company, you know, Infantry Regiment Gross Deutschland, right? It's more words. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can say that if people are really interested. You don't have to say that as the first greeting to public, uh, uh, well, the audience. The group that I was in before is called 3rd Panzergrenadier Division, and... People used to always call us Third Panzer, which just drive me drove me crazy because Third Panzer was a totally different division, right? Third Panzer Division versus Third Panzer Grenadier Division. These were two different formations, different history. I don't know. I guess it's just it's just one of these things. It's always kind of like irked me. I don't know. A pet peeve, right? I know it's not a big deal, but to me, it's it just seems like it should be easy to adopt. I mean, this these this was the World War II German way of keeping the units separate, right? You know, why can't we just do what they did, call these things what they called them? Um, you know, not to say that having like a generic name like the Division or Der Erste Zug, right? Those are, I, I think those are great ideas. There's a lot of flexibility built into that thing. But if you're going to tie yourself to a unit designation, uh at least understand it, right? At least use it, be able to use it correctly. And oh, yeah. Yeah, that totally. Would be an improvement <laughs> for me. If you're going to do it, do it correctly. Don't half ass uh, stuff. I mean, is there other stuff that you can think of that for you, Lassa, would be an improvement for World War II reenacting? Uh, well, I think most of Europe kind of struggles with uh, strict gun laws. Um, yeah. So, not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> having guns free for all but uh, having reenactment more recognized uh, legally so you can have own own laws for uh, blank fire guns for reenactment use that would for example be a very big improvement sure um, and of course more people more people is always an improvement let's talk about like some things that kind of prevent World War II reenacting from uh, reaching like a next level, you know. Um, I think that we just need to recognize that reenactors, there's a lot of turnover in reenacting. You know, I've mentioned this before, but I think most reenactors probably participate in the hobby for about five years. And, um, you know, so there's new people coming in all the time. And there's a lot of institutional knowledge that's kind of getting lost as older people who've been reenacting for a while leave. And so the learning curve is just really steep 
when you get started in reenacting. There's so much to learn and there's only so many hours in a day. A reality is you just can't teach everybody everything on day one. You're always going to have a significant percentage of the people at every event are relatively new and they're learning and they don't they don't know a lot of stuff that they're going to learn, right? They don't know as much as they will know. Yeah, we um, spend uh, we spend a lot of time uh, basically all the time to teach new recruits uh, what uh, how to do stuff and well everything really right it's like you know it it doesn't matter if you've got nine guys in your group that know how to do uh rifle drill or squad movements uh or even something like cleaning your rifle you know absolutely perfectly in the right by the book manual way if the 10th person in your group is a brand new recruit who's never been to an event before and now you've got to spend the time training that guy to bring him up to speed and by the time he's up to speed you're probably going to have another new guy that you're going to have to train so this you know there like i say there's always going to be a significant chunk of people in world war ii reenacting who just don't you know they're new to it you know they're learning they they are learning what german soldiers ate they are learning you know these most basic fundamental building blocks and so you know you're not going to have you're not going to be able to have events where every single you're not going to be able to have large-scale events where every single person is like completely 100 expert in the role that they are playing there will always be new people and that you know reenactment has to account for that yeah and i think that's a big responsibility for unit commanders is to just keep on teaching uh, the same stuff over and over again to new people because as soon as one person has been uh, taught how to do stuff he will disappear and a new guy will come in also I think it's worth like tr taking a look you know at the reality of what kinds of people get involved in World War II reenacting I mean you've got a lot of people who you know reenacting is fun and there is a thrill of blank fire combat and you've got a lot of people who get involved because they want to experience that feeling that they're in a world war ii battle and that's that's totally understandable and fine um some percentage of those people are eventually going to want to kind of take it to another level and you know have more of an understanding about what day-to-day -day life really was like for world war ii soldiers but not everybody will you know, some people are just going to love the thrill of shooting blanks and they're going to learn, you know, kind of the minimum or, of how to shoot blanks at another person. And, and they're going to be content with that. And that, I, you know, that's all right. Reenactment is kind of a big tent that encompasses a lot of different sort of sub hobbies. You know, I love my paperwork stuff where I fill out identity documents for reenactors. I do not expect that other reenactors will share that niche interest and they will have niche interests that I don't share, you know, whether it's the combat or vehicles or the weapons or whatever, right? You know, my ideas about what a perfect event would be are not the same as the ideas of everybody else who might be going to the event. So there have to be compromises. There have to be compromises to allow a wider spectrum of participants to attend. Otherwise, you have these events with five people. And my unit does events with five people often, you know, and uh, yeah, but that's I love just them. for your unit. 
yeah, just for my unit. They're they're very realistic. I love these events. I I love uh, you know doing the experimental archaeology stuff and honing our craft together as a group. But um, look. I just don't see how these type of five-person events, which obviously I like doing them, but I don't think that that can like sustain this hobby in the form that it has been in for the last 10 or 20 years. You know, I, I just think that ideas about kind of transcending the current status quo completely and achieving, reenacting on some higher next plane, I, um, I think that those ideas are not really taken into account like, who World War II reenactors really are, the type of people that do this stuff, and the limitations inherent in in all of this. You know, it's just people I think should be realistic about it and, be, and realize, okay, well, uh, not a you know we're not going to be able to do a large scale event where every person is a professional academic researcher. <laughs> yeah, no, I, big events need to have some sort of compromise, but. Um... Of course, they'll have some sort of standards. I think events that don't have any standards won't won't be big events ultimately, because people really do prefer um, something that feels real to something that feels more like a carnival for the most part. I think. Yeah, like there's a golden middle way between having the most hardcore shit uh, with the highest standards possible and having like accepting anyone who passes by. I'm a big fan of what I consider to be like basic minimum standards, you know, telling people that your your grooming has to be correct, your impression has to be correct, you know, your uniform and equipment has to be correct for what you're portraying, and, uh, you know, just establish some real baseline standards. If you do that, you can get rid of the bulk of, like, the most flagrantly inauthentic stuff without becoming so, so granular that... Um, you know, you're turning away people who might be able to come because, uh, you know, you're you're kind of making it sound like you're going to be inspecting, you know, every single aspect of what somebody has in their pockets. You know, and that's not that's not how reenactment really is or works anywhere. I like when you have those basic standards given to the part participating units, and then it's up to those units to actually make sure people follow them. Right. That's, you know, that's the, to, for me, the big thing. That way you can hold the unit leaders accountable, right? You can make sure that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. You can, if, if somebody is not behaving correctly, if someone's got an inaccurate stuff, you don't, you know, you don't have to take it up with them. You can take it up with their unit commander. And that guy is concerned about his own reputation and getting invited to the event next time for his guys. And they will fix that problem. You know, as far as what the future holds for this hobby improvement, you know, there you're you're right. There is more information available now than there was ten years ago, than there was twenty years ago, or than there was last year. Generally speaking, there has never been more information about this stuff available. Um, you know, how do you how do you get people to like use that information? How do you get people to even look at that information? That I do not know. I'm always putting out historical information that's pertinent to the impressions that I do. So if other people are doing, want to do the same type of impressions, you know, my unit portrays a, a rear area security group that would have been in combat against partisans. I'm always throwing out information about the uh, Soviet partisan movement and the, the German countermeasures to that. But 
you know, does that have any effect on reenacting? Does anybody see that? Does anybody act on that stuff? I don't know. I haven't re- that I haven't really seen. You know. Well, I think even if they do, the uh, overall effect will be so minimal to reenactment in general that it really doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't really matter. You know. So and and but I would extrapolate that out to like a lot of the information stuff. You know, the availability of information is great, but. You know, what's the tangible change at reenactment for new information becoming available? I don't really know. thing is, there's uh, still a lot of reenactorisms and myths going around that really hinders new <laughs> new information. Right. I mean, it's, you know, I see it every day uh, on the Internet. Um, you know, some people will be talking about real historical precedent or lack of precedent for um, some specific type of reproduction and then someone will just come in and say well you know uh if they had it they would have used it you know nobody was there when they made the stuff and if this was how somebody wanted to make it on a particular day well the materials existed and they could have made it and that that should be good enough you know so there there will always be kind of yeah there will always be some resistance to this hobby being uh just like purely based on historical documentation if they had it, they would have used it. It's probably the worst thing I've ever heard in reenactment. It's a it's a slippery slope. I mean, it's just that is the road to an inauthentic impression. You know, one of the many roads, but that's a that's a highway that leads to a bad impression. <laughs> it's a highway in a fast car. <laughs> right. It's a speed train. So I guess just to sum it up, sort of to bring this to its to its total conclusion, you know. Um, like I said at the beginning, uh, we'll come full circle. Like reenactment is regional. Um, in your area of the world, Vasa, I think reenactment probably is improving, and that's great. Uh, in my area of the world, it has changed, and I think some of those changes are for the better, but a lot of them aren't. And I think in general, events aren't really better than they were in the past, for the most part. Um, but we don't know what the... Uh, what the future holds and everything that I just talked about, about how reenacting is, uh, could be totally different in a year's time, you know? So I guess, uh, for those of us doing this stuff, we'll just have to wait and see. I would like to say to people who are thinking of hosting events, uh, start doing it. Absolutely. I mean, this hobby needs leaders and it's important for people who are in a position to be able to step up and be an organizer to do that. You know, this hobby needs organization. This hobby is suffering right now from a lack of organization. And, you know, there are people out there I know who are like natural born leaders, skilled organizers, and it's time to shine. Uh, You know, a lot of the hobby leaders of the past are gone and there's a power vacuum. Step up and fill it, you know. Exactly. Even if it's just a small uh, should I say come together event without any shooting or anything just training event kind of uh, start hosting it sure. and if it's tactical do it anything do it just host events and for people who are listening to this who want to get started in reenacting and are wondering when the best time to get started in it is like the best time is now because uh, you know this is changing all the time and the, the sooner that you jump in the, the more opportunities you're going to have and the the better position you'll be to be a reenactor in whatever comes after this, you know? Exactly. I think that's uh, really well put. All right. Uh, I guess that's that's about it for this episode. So, uh, Lhasa, I will see you in the field. <laughs> I'll see you in the field, Chris. 
thanks again to Mike, aka Retroman, for editing this podcast.